change. It's the discipline of hospitality. And it is one, if you read books on the spiritual disciplines, oftentimes you'll come to the end of these books. So, for example, Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. And you'll find this discipline entitled Celebration or um, Joy or Community. And, uh, and so we're framing this as hospitality. And what all those books say is that this is sort of the doxology of the disciplines. So as you put the other disciplines we've been studying, and we haven't looked at them all. Um, we haven't had time or space to do that. But as you put all the disciplines together, the idea is that uh, the outcome or the outflowing of a life lived with these disciplines in them is hospitality or is celebration. So we want to look at that this morning as an opportunity for us to understand what that looks like, especially on the cusp of going into Thanksgiving and that holiday because that's a big hospitality weekend. So let's uh, take a moment to pray and then we'll dive into this teaching from Gospel of Luke chapter 14, okay? Pray with me, please. God, we thank you for uh, the word that we get to come to this morning and open up together. Thank you for even how this story from Jesus' time and uh, this scene where he's seated at a table with others, uh, guests and friends and some of him, his adversaries can inform our lives. And so, God, would this word become alive to us? Uh, it's so distant from our time, but would it, would it, would it draw near to our, our experiences, um, inform our lives, shape our faith? And then as we st- step out these doors today... Um, also inform our next steps, how we live in relationship to those around us, um, how we fellowship as a community. Thank you that we get to do this together in these moments ahead, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know how many of you read um, <clears throat> the Seattle Times or get the Sunday paper. Do, does anybody? I don't often go by the Sunday paper, but I'd seen in my Facebook feed this week an article kept coming up from the the, the Pacific Northwest Magazine. So I used to get the New York Times, and the New York Times Magazine was the only reason I got that, because it was like this awesome magazine I could read. And now I know why I don't get the Seattle Times, because it's like this like really weak, anemic magazine. But this Pacific Northwest Magazine, it'd be easy to miss, because it's like tucked in with all the advertisements, and you just toss those, right? But So I picked it up, and uh, the reason I got it is because there's this article in it that caught my attention called Seattle's Crazy Restaurant Boom. And it's it's, a, it's an article just all about how we're just in this restaurant craze right now. Here's how the article begins. I'm going to mess up some restaurant names, so just hang with me. Have you been to Opus Company, the new Finney Ridge restaurant from the two chefs who worked with the great Rachel Yang? Or, or eaten Matsuko Soma's already renowned handmade soba at her brand new, here's how I'm going to mess it up, Kamo, Kamoneji, is that right? Mm. I'm, uh, yeah, somebody's looking at me like, I don't even know, don't even throw me into the bus in Fremont, where the Art of the Table used to be. Been to the new location of the beloved Art of the Table a block away. Tried the imported from Hong Kong, reportedly incredible Betsu Tenjin Ramen on Capitol Hill, or the other three soon to be four new ramen places within a half mile of Betsu Tenjin, or the half dozen pizzerias nearby, or any of the 35-plus places specializing in poke in and around Seattle. Who's had poke? How is it? Is it... Eh, looks like just like sushi on steroids. Is that kind of basically it? Yeah, so there you have it. So that's how this article begins. If you can't keep up, it's not your imagination. Restaurants are opening at an unprecedented rate in Seattle. Over a one-month-and-a-half period this summer, 40 debuted just in Seattle. 
And then the article goes on to say that Seattle now has 2,696 restaurants as of the first quarter of 2017. That's up 25% from a decade ago. Yeah. Contrary to the often quoted fact that most restaurants, half of all restaurants, fail in their first year, the Seattle survival rate for restaurants has been hovering on 87%, which is up, 80, up from 83% in 2007. So like restaurants stick around in Seattle. And the number of Seattle restaurants' gross annual sales are startling, up 45% from just a decade ago to $2.9 billion, yes, billion, $2.9 billion a year in revenue. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it's a big, big business in Seattle, and it's getting bigger all the time. I mean, last year, for the first time nationally, spending on eating out eclipsed spending at grocery stores. Uh, and Seattle's economy is, as you might have heard, booming. So we have more cranes than any other city in the United States and more new residents, 90,000 new Seattleites in the last seven years. And they all need to eat out, right? We all need to eat out at some point or another. And so why this article and why those statistics are so important, especially as we approach this discipline of hospitality, is that when it comes to hospitality, most of us, I'd say, if not all of us, think of like Martha Stewart or we think of our Thanksgiving menu that we're preparing for or we think of eating out sometime this week. More than we think of a spiritual practice that has the power to deepen our intimacy with Christ and then transform our lives. We don't, we don't think of it that way, right? We probably never thought of it. Maybe you have, but I rarely think of it that way. We think of the hospitality industry. That's what this is called, the hospitality industry. And, and that's exercising incredible influence over our economy and our culture. I mean, these restaurants are shaping the landscape of our city and our region. Uh, and, and yet, here, as we look at the Scripture, before it was a booming business, hospitality was first and foremost an expression of the grace of God. First and foremost. So what does hospitality have to do with the gospel and the grace of God? That's the question on the table. And how do we cultivate it as a spiritual discipline? And that's why we landed at Luke 14. It's a good place to begin to unpack those questions because it begins this way. One Sabbath... Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Uh, it's just striking as you look at the life of Jesus how often he's eating out. So his first miracle was performed at a meal in John 2 at the wedding at Cana. I mean, he could have done a lot of different things, but he goes out to a wedding and he's there eating and drinking. He finishes his ministry with a meal, the Passover, the Last Supper. He could have, I, I'm guessing he could have done almost anything with his last hours, but Jesus decides that the most important last thing is to have dinner with his friends. Uh, his first act after rising from the dead, Luke chapter 24, he sees a couple of his friends walking along, they're talking. Guess what he does? He decides to grab lunch. Let's get lunch, guys. After that, John 21, we talked about this in our little huddle with the volunteers this morning. Seven of his closest friends are so disheartened by his death, they decide to do what every guy does when they're kind of discouraged, they go fishing. And that was a joke. And so we're told that they go fishing. They see Jesus on the shore of the lake, sitting by a fire with some fish and some bread laid out. And he says this to them, come and have breakfast. I mean, Jesus was like an ancient Near Eastern foodie. He loved eating. Why is he eating all the time? And I mean, what's up with Jesus and food? (laughs) So in Luke 14, I think gives us kind of the clue here. So Luke 14, he's invited to, with some other religious leaders, he's a religious leader in his Day, and that was a common way for religious leaders to connect, was over food. 
And he's invited to this dinner, and there's this man with dropsy, which is uh, swelling of the joints. We call it edema now. This man runs into the house where they're eating, stands in front of Jesus, disrupts this whole meal, which really inappropriate for this guy to do, and Jesus is totally unfazed. Heals the guy, doesn't ask any questions of the guy, sends him away, and then he tells these stories. They're called the dinner parables that we just heard. So those dinner parables really illustrate for us why hospitality is such an important part of Jesus' life and what it means for our lives. Why it's the doxology of the disciplines. It's sort of all the disciplines kind of put together become hospitality. And so we're going to look at this, these dinner parables together and look at kind of three aspects of them and what they, how they inform gospel hospitality this morning. We're going to look at the, um, the nature of hospitality, the requirements for it, and then the, uh, the result of it. So we'll look at the nature and then a few requirements and the result of it, okay? So first the nature, and I'm going to back the lens out before we dive into Luke 14. Hospitality, like I said, was this common practice in Jesus' day. And so there were no hotels, no restaurants. So travelers would come to a town. If you're on the road, like Jesus, I looked at this map recently in the National Geographic that just came out, the December version, and there's a map of Jesus' journeys. And like, he's all over the place. So there's no restaurants. He didn't have any fast food, nothing. So he'd go from town to town and he'd be hungry. He'd be looking for food and drink and shelter. And so a sort of culture arose around the practice of taking in travelers as guests in your home. And it, was, and it was a high honor to do that. If you had a home in a town or a village, it was a really high honor to bring a, a guest in and to host them in Jesus' day. Because it was a way of showing that you had money. It was a way to show that you had privilege. It meant you had food to spare. You had room in your house to spare, time to spare. So it brought honor on you from your community. And so we know from his go- the Gospels, Jesus was a traveler for his whole life. A couple places in the Gospels, we know he's an itinerant rabbi. A couple places, Matthew 8, Luke 9, he had nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus didn't have his own home. He went from town to town, village to village, preaching, teaching, healing, performing miracles. He lived his life as a guest, a traveler. And so he, he was often taken into people's homes for dinner. So he's, and, and his, he's, his life is powerfully shaped by these meals that he shared with others. So much so that his, he tells his disciples in like my favorite chapter in Luke, to go from town to town where he's going to go himself and to proclaim the gospel by way of eating dinner with other people. Listen to this, Luke chapter 10, verses 8 and 9. When you enter a town and are welcomed in, eat what's offered to you. That's his first instruction. Then heal the sick who are there and then tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But it starts with eating. (laughs) Sit down, just eat what's offered to you. So Jesus is obsessed with food. His life is oriented around it. So much so that early Christian writings begin to emerge in the New Testament around, with this idea of hospitality embedded in them. So in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, it says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. There's that word. And then in Hebrews 13 too, which we're going to unpack for a second here, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. There's an instruction there for Christians like to show hospitality to strangers. So these writings at a level reflect this cultural value that was just kind of normal, of welcoming travelers in, welcoming strangers in. But more importantly, a spiritual value that Jesus possessed himself, a way to live out your faith. So if you take that Hebrews 13 verse when it says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, it goes on to say, here's the reason for that, that some in doing so have entertained angels unaware. You know this verse. You probably memorized it in Sunday school. Uh, And then there's like a Stephen Curtis Chapman song about it or something. But in Genesis 18, where that that 
metaphor that the idea comes from is from Genesis 18, and it's the story of Abraham and these three strangers, if you know this story. They're traveling through the desert, and they approach his camp. They're looking for food. They're hungry, uh, and, they, and so they stop, and we learn from the story they're actually angels. There's three of them. And they're on their way to the city of Sodom, which is another sermon for another day. I'm not going to go down that path. But they're on their way there. And, and the point is, Abraham, without realizing it, doesn't know that these are angels, doesn't know they're emissaries from God. He, kills, he has his wife do it, actually. He kills a calf and a goat, cooks it, gets them water, bread, food. He just entertains them as a lavish feast for them. He cares for them. And he welcomes them in. And then Hebrews later says, these were angels and you were unaware. Now, how is that significant, the fact that they're angels? Why is that important? Uh, William Lane, did anybody have him as a professor when you were at SPU? I think my wife did, so a few of you did. He was a professor at SPU in the New Testament and taught a lot on Hebrews. So he suggests that uh, the message for Christians from Hebrews 13.2 is this idea that, that God will play a significant role in the ordinary exchange between guests and hosts. That, that there's this expectation within a meal, in the practice of hospitality, uh, that there's a sacramental quality to eating together. A sacramental quality. Now, you're probably asking, well, sacramental, what's that? Because we, we don't really talk about sacraments at Bethany. We're not like a high church. We're kind of low church. <laughs> and, you know, we had to explain what licensure means, things like that. We're just kind of like, hey, it's all good. It's all good. So let me unpack what that means for you real quick, because it's really not really weird. Sacraments in the Presbyterian church that I got ordained to are just ordinary means of grace. So we have two in the Presbyterian church. We have baptism and communion. And the reason these are ordinary, you have water, bread, wine, just ordinary stuff you can get anywhere. And yet, when dedicated to God, so we do this monthly during our communion celebrations, we do it a few times a year with baptism, when we dedicate those things to God, we say that common stuff becomes a vehicle for God's power and God's grace to come into our lives. It's just a strange thing. Your non-Christian friends probably watch you do this. They go, weird. But we believe that as a sacrament, those things are a vehicle for God's power and God's grace to come into our lives. And so what the Bible tells us in some mysterious way, hospitality holds a sacramental quality. You're entertaining angels unaware. It's a vehicle for God to communicate His grace to us and to others as well as God's power to come into our lives. I mean, we've never, maybe you have, but think of your Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> you're there with your father-in-law and your mother-in-law or whoever you're going to be with, your neighbors, your aunts, uncles, your kids. It's a mess, and yet it's got a sacramental quality to it. You're entertaining angels unaware. God's power and God's grace coming into your lives. Now, through that lens, think of this. Luke 14 starts to make sense to us. So back the lens in again, or focus in again. Jesus is with these other religious leaders, and this man with dropsy, with edema, comes in and disrupts their dinner. Jesus knows it's not just another dinner, just on another Wednesday night. He knows it's an opportunity uh, to heal a guest. He sees this guy as a guest, not just a guy who came in off the street. He sees this guy no longer as a stranger, but as a friend. He speaks truth to the host who's brought him to this meal in that story. He says in Luke 14, 5, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, wouldn't you immediately pull it out? Speaking truth to the, the host there. Now, it's interesting to pause there real quick. That word child, if you look at the footnote in your Bible, 
can also be translated donkey. I just think that's fascinating because it's a way for translators to sort of soften the blow of Jesus' teaching. I mean, Jesus is hitting this guy in the gut because, listen, a donkey or an ox in a well, or you say this is the, like the stock market crashing, no big deal. It'll go back up. It's a tough day at the office. I lost a lot of money, loss of income, loss of property, but, but nothing to lose a lot of sleep over because tomorrow will come. You don't, get warm, you don't get warm and fuzzy. I don't care how much of a feeler you are over your livestock. Like, you just don't. But a child falling into a well, I don't care who you are. You're going to do anything in your power. I don't care what day of the week it is to save that child, bring him out of the well, right? I mean, Jesus is saying this person right here is that child. This meal possesses power for God's grace to come into our lives. And you guys are so focused on, like, the norms and where people sit and who, who's washed their hands and what day of the week it is. I mean, Jesus is saying that the, the simple meals that we gather around, if we just pay attention to what God's doing in them, who God's bringing to the table, the power of God there, we'll see that hospitality is sacramental. Sitting with people at a table is never ordinary. There are, as C.S. Lewis says somewhere, no ordinary people. <laughs> Everyone is like a sacrament to us. So, in other words, when we welcome people into our lives, take it off just eating, whether it's a shared meal, a cup of coffee, a simple visit with a stranger on the street as you're walking to work or wherever, these very mundane encounters possess the power for God to communicate grace in the lives of our lives as well as the lives of others. We never just have dinner with ordinary friends. So, I'll tell you a story I think I've told recently, but of an encounter I had with one of my neighbors recently. His name's Frank, back in September. Uh, my family was out of town, so I was going up to Chayotai, which is near my house, and I saw Frank kind of walk in the opposite direction on the other side of the street, and he was kind of just walking with his hands in his pocket, you know, looking down. So I crossed over. I had a little time. You know, I wasn't in a rush to go get my takeout, and so I stopped and began to chat with him. And he mentioned to me, I hadn't, he hadn't seen us much this fall, and I mentioned to him that we've been really busy, you know, like, as if that's a thing. Elizabeth's back teaching full-time this fall, and so we're both kind of working full-time. Kids are involved in a lot of activities. Work's been really busy for me. And right when I said that, I knew it. Oh, man, here it goes. And he asked me, so what do you do for work? I've lived around you for a year. What do you do? I'm like, well, I used to use the teacher thing because we used to meet at Nathan Hill High School, and I kind of teach. But now we're meeting at a church. I can't really lie, so I'm a pastor. And I just knew, I, usually that shuts those conversations right down. But instead, it just opened right up. He, I mean, it was amazing. He starts to share his story with me and open his life up, like about his past and his struggles with addiction, his relationship with his son that's been strained and he's been living there for the last year, sleeping on the couch because he just got out of jail and now his son's kicking him out and he's going to go have to find a new place to live and he's going to lose his job. And like, he just goes on and on and on. And because I'd already put it out there that I was a pastor... You know what he said next? Hey, would you pray for me? And like I kind of balked for a second there because my neighbors don't usually ask for that. You know, like a few of my neighbors do, but not the ones I just meet on the street. And I'm like, you mean like right now? He's like, yeah, like right now. You're a pastor. I was like, all right. And we're in the street, but let's do it. And so we're praying in the street. There's no sidewalk in my neighborhood. So that's why we're in the street. And it was just one of those amazing moments of vulnerability where I, I just knew God's power was right there with us as he just surrendered himself to the grace of God and saying, hey, I, I submit to whatever God can do in my life. And 
find me a place to live and find me a new job and find me a community. Uh, there's no ordinary people. I was just out to get some takeout. So every setting where we meet travelers, is what I'm trying to say, every place where you encounter another person, whether it's around a table, like I said, or on the bus, is an opportunity to extend God's welcome and to express God's grace. It could be a sacred salvation event. Do you understand? Is it making sense? So Jesus, by just joining this dinner party, being a guest, and then turning the meal upside down and healing this guy, is saying to all those gathered that God's grace is always, always, always powerfully present in the most mundane events of our lives, most ordinary things. And that's what's at stake here in Luke 14. And what's at stake whenever we meet with a stranger or gather with a friend, whenever we sit down for dinner, that's the nature of hospitality, okay? So I'm gonna, that's, that's kind of the first thing. I want to look now at the requirements for it because that's kind of the big canvas we're painting on. Let's look at some of the nuts and bolts. What's required for us to put hospitality like that, just paying attention to the sacredness of it into practice? And Jesus offers a few. And the first I want to look at, it kind of comes at us in verses 8 to 11. I left my Bible there. Can you get my Bible for me? <laughs> what kind of pastor am I? There we go. So Luke 14, uh, 8 to 11. I think I would be ready, right? Uh, let me read this for us again just to kind of hit refresh. So he told this parable. When, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host you invited will, will come to you and say to you, give this person your seat. And then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. When you're invited, instead take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he'll, he or she'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those, here's the key, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So the first, the first requirement for hospitality, Jesus says, is an attitude of humility. Okay, an attitude of humility. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled, okay? And all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Social status and like social stratifications were these, as you read this story, these vital considerations in just structuring life in Jesus' day. Um, so your place in the, the social pyramid, it determined what kind of job you took, it determined where, where you lived, where you went to school, who you married. Your place in the religious community, where you sat in a religious community, it was all determined by kind of who you were on this social ladder. And things really haven't changed that much. Not that we're doing that here. But like, whether implicitly or explicitly, we still live in this culture defined by this mantra. It's not what you know, it's who you know, right? Uh, and in Jesus' day, one of the ways of advertising who you knew was where you sat during a meal. He kind of gets into this in this story. So meals were important social events. They were often like held at these social halls, like a, like a grange. I grew up near a grange in Spokane like a town hall. And so at that meal, the entire community would gather. And then all the religious elites would sit together and the rest of us would kind of sit around the periphery and watch them eat, I guess. And the key is that the closer you got to the host at that meal, especially if the host was a prominent person in the community, the greater status that was conferred upon you, the more important people thought you were. And as a result, where you sat in the meal really, 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 really mattered. And so here in Jesus' first story, Jesus reverses the logic. He says, take the lowest seat. 
Sit as far from the host as possible. Surrender your status. <laughs> That's cr- I mean, it's crazy what he's saying. He's really reversing things. And here's why. Everyone who exalts himself or herself will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. He kind of puts everything on humility. Now, we talk about humility a lot. Uh, I don't think we really understand what it is. The best definition I ever read was from C.S. Lewis. Uh, he says, it's not thinking less of yourself. That's self-deprecation. It's thinking of yourself less. It's kind of a play on words there. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Does that make sense? And he gets this idea from Paul in Philippians 2, chapter, uh, 2, 2 verse 3, where he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. So don't think less of yourself. Think of yourself less. Just stop thinking of yourself. Count others more significant. And in this way, it's, it's not to be confused with false modesty. You know, humility is other focus. It's, it's moving down, emptying a chair, offering a seat to another guest, uh, a traveler, a stranger. It's about surrendering for another person. And, and it's, so Earl Palmer has this great example of this that I once heard in one of his sermons. He was a pastor at University Press where I once worked, and he likens it to putting others in line in front of yourself at the grocery store. So imagine yourself at the supermarket, and you've only got two items, okay? You're at Whole Foods or wherever. That place is always crazy, by the way. I don't know why I ever go there, but it's always crazy. So you go there, you're at the 10-item line, and you've got two, right? And right in front of you is this person with, you know what I'm talking about, with the, with the cart full of stuff. And it's, you know, it's a mom, she's got two kids, she looks really like she's just going crazy uh, with her groceries, and you're just like, man, did you see 10 items limit? And I got two, and you're standing there, and that person ahead of you sees you, and she says, why don't you go ahead? You only have a couple things. <laughs> What's another minute, <laughs> right? Like my life. In biologic, what Palmer says is that customer who's spent probably an hour or more in that supermarket finding things that she wants and needs, dealing with those kids, has the right to go ahead of you even though it says 10 item limit. I mean, there's no law about that, right? So the, you've only spent five, maybe five minutes finding your two items, right? And what that, when that person invites you to go ahead, it's not a sign of low self-esteem, but rather the opposite, he says. It's a person who can perform a small act of courtesy in a checkout stand who gets humility. Who, they're not preoccupied with these narrowly sort of defined rules of justice and rights in general. Like, I was here first. I've been here an hour. Get in line, right? They're like, hey, why don't you just go ahead? It's no big deal. And I'll just say, even when we put in terms of that kind of easy to understand analogy, because we've all been there at one point or another, humility is kind of a hard word to, to live out. Like, when we don't feel like we've received the recognition we deserve... Uh, we feel like we're being neglected in relationships, like a one-sided friendship or maybe it's in your marriage or with your kids. You feel like your needs aren't being met emotionally, relationally, spiritually. You're just spent. Humility is really hard to walk out when you're in, living in, under those conditions. Um, but humility, when you begin to understand it, as Jesus says, just moving down the table actually is not as hard as we think it is. See, in this story, Jesus... <laughs> he's the guest of honor. He's seated right next to the host. Think of this. He'd been invited to that dinner to kind of be the MC. So he's going to be there and give a little speech and give some teaching. And these Pharisees are really curious about who Jesus is. So come and tell us some stories, Jesus. And Jesus, 
tells them, hey, empty the seat next to me. Empty the seat next to him. Empty those seats. Move down. Do you know what he's doing? Putting others first. It brings them one seat closer to Jesus. That's what he's talking about. That's what humility is. It puts people closer to the power of Christ. So it's really not about you. (laughs) It's not about sort of uh, lowering yourself and bending yourself into this posture. It's saying, Jesus, I want my friends and my family, my neighbors to encounter you. And, and Jesus just invites me just to move down a seat, to put somebody in front of me in line. I mean, to allow them to experience somehow in that simple act, the heart of Christ, his grace, his power. Does this make sense to you? So it's about, inter- humility is about introducing others to Jesus is what it's really about. That's the first attitude of the heart. Here's the second one. And it's in verses 17 to 20, uh, which we didn't read, so let me read this. It's this posture of radical availability. And actually, the, the verses we did read, 12, 12 to 14, kind of illustrate this, but here's what Jesus says. It's like a second parable. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who'd been invited, come, everything's now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And then still another said, just got married. I can't come. So we'll pause there. (laughs) So you have this parable where this host invites a bunch of friends to the dinner and gets a bunch of no's, okay? Now each friend, they must have given an initial yes. They retract their yes, they give the no, because something we would say, something else came up. We wouldn't say it this way, but something better came up. Uh, I mean, you, you know the story. These excuses this, these guys give, they have two things in common. They're all a little different, but they're all basically the same in two ways. First, they're all lame excuses. I'll just say that. I mean, the first one given by this wealthy landowner that has to inspect some land, that's like, it's an obvious lie. Like, no one buys land without knowing every little, it's like buying a house. Well, actually, this happens now <laughs> without a pre-inspection or anything. But you get my point. It's kind of a risk, so you usually don't do that. Uh, the other one, it needs to go out and test drive an oxen. Lame excuse, okay? It's like buying a new car and then test driving. You just don't do that, right? Uh, the third, a little better excuse, I just got married. Like, we often say that, right? I just got married. Life's busy. But really, this is not the day of shotgun weddings. This is like the time of months-long weddings planned years in advance, so if this friend gave an initial yes, he had no intention of ever coming. It's been on the calendar for a while. And so these are lame excuses. But here's the other thing they have in common. Every excuse has the same heartbeat. I'm more important than you are. My, what I'm doing is more important than you are. Getting things done is more important than our relationship. So I'm going to take you on my own terms. When I have time, when it's convenient. And that's the attitude Jesus is challenging here. He's saying... He's challenging us to see these interruptions of our plans, because we all plans, as actually where he's most at work in our lives, okay? Uh, so the interruption, like to stop and be with another in a relationship, like I said earlier, is sacred time. And Jesus is saying, let me interrupt you. <laughs> let me interrupt your plans. So for example, uh, Henry Nouwen, he's, I often quote him, but he has this great story of this time where he's, he said, he's a professor at this point, at Yale or at Notre Dame or something, he says, 
My whole life, I've been constantly complaining that students come in, always, you know, have open-door policy, are always interrupting me, you know. I don't know how many of you, I know there's a few of you who teach, always interrupting me. I could never get my work done until I realized that the interruptions were my work. See, then he says this, it's been the interruptions to my everyday life that have revealed to me the divine mystery of which I'm a part. All the interruptions, they present themselves as opportunities. They invite me to look in a new way at my identity before God. Each interruption, listen to this, it took something away from me. It's going to take something away from you. When God interrupts you, when you're invited to do something and you say yes to it and you stick with it, it's going to take something away from you. It's going to take a sacrifice. But every interruption offers something new to you. What he's saying there is that interruptions confront the illusion that we're in control of our time. We often think of our time, look how we talk about it. We have it, we spend it, we want more of it, we never have enough, right? And it's the same for this man's friends. I've got no time for the party, right? I've got too much on my calendar, it's going to take too much time out of my life, I can't come. I'm, I'm busy. And we're being invited by this parable that Jesus tells that, to see that time is actually a gift, that God's given to us. And yeah, sometimes we don't have enough of it. But the beginning is that God created time with rhythms of day and night, Sabbath and rest. It's a gift. And, and so he's saying, how can you receive that well and just live into it? Uh, Jesus is saying, swim with us upstream against the current of like a workaholism. Go to the party. <laughs> you might not get as much done, you know? You may be really busy. You might waste some time there. But there will be a sacred encounter. Back up to the first thing I said. Between the guests and those, God's going to show up. And just give yourself over to that. This time you have is a gift. Will you receive that? So if the, if the task at hand is so important for us, it, it, getting things done, is, is it become a barrier for you to encountering God? Uh, between you and others, like the call here with this parable is just to stop if that's you, and just pay attention to when God's inviting you into something. Like when I met this guy, Frank, on the sidewalk, inviting me into that encounter. And just stop. It took a while. In fact, he came over that evening. Uh, I went and got Chayo, invited him over, and we spent the evening watching the Huskies game together, and then there was a show on Netflix, and like I realized soon after, I was like, man, it's Saturday night. I'm going to be up early in the morning, but he doesn't care. And you know what? huge interruption of my time, but my family wasn't there. And why not? Let's just hang out, Frank. So a a posture, yeah, some of you are like, nah, I like my home. So that's a posture of availability, radical availability. It's just totally countercultural. So the first thing, genuine humility. Second, radical availability. Okay, here's the last one, and then we'll conclude. This sort of offering a place of universal welcome, okay? So uh, in the parable, at the end of that story, the master of the house of this place becomes angry at the excuses and says to the servant, now we'll go out and get all the poor, all the powerless, all the blind, all the lame, bring them in to the feast. You know, if these people who are giving me excuses won't come, bring everybody else, okay? So that my house may be feel, filled, okay? So put this in context of that part from Hebrews 13 that I I talked about. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. This idea, hospitality to strangers, is actually one word in the Greek. And it's this word phyloxenia, and I've talked about this before. It's a compound Greek word. If you pull it apart, you'll you'll know. 
there's two words. There's xenos, where we get our word xenophobia from. And there's the, the, one of the Greek words for love, phileo, which is the word we get Philadelphia, friendship, all that good stuff from. You, you compound those, and what you get is hospitality, but literally that means just strangerly love. Not strangerly fear, which is xenophobia, but strangerly love. Love people unlike you. Love people different than you. So here in the parable, the master says, go out and get some very different people so I can love on them, so I can show them hospitality. The cripple, the blind, the lame. In other words, invite people as radically different from us as you can. Unlike you, nobody, people, nobody would expect. They don't, they, nobody wanted at the table. People who could not confer any status on us by being here. They're not going to repay us, nothing. People who look different, speak a different language, dress different, believe different, go out, bring them in, compel, Jesus says, compel them to come in, admonish them to join this party. It's going to be a great party. We're going to have a great party. And which is, which is extremely important because Jesus did this all the time, all the time. If you look at his life, he's always eating with the wrong kind of, the quote-unquote wrong kind of people, prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners. These are the wrong kind of people to eat dinner with in Jesus' day. And the Pharisees were always asking Jesus, why? Like rabbis, good religious people in Jesus' day, don't eat with prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners. You don't seem to get it, Jesus. <laughs> you failed that class in seminary. Like, you're not behaving like a good rabbi. <laughs> and, and Jesus says, that's exactly the point. Let me, let me tell you why he's eating with those people. Uh, he tells so in the parable. He, he doesn't eat with them to preach at them. He ate with them as we read his life, not to teach them about God's grace, but to show them that through healing, breaking of bread. Uh, in other words, people don't usually get argued into belief. That's what we think. Like, I'm going to give them the Romans road and a tract, and then they're going to pray, right? They, and even though it's my job, I don't think you guys get preached into belief. Don't fire me. But, and I think I can be of help to some of you, but in the end, people generally get loved into belief. They, they get broken bread into belief, cup poured out into belief, like offer a meal of fellowship and grace into belief. Does this make sense? That's how Jesus did it. And he's inviting us to do the same. Uh, there's a guy up in Vancouver, Bob Goff. Some of you guys know who he is. He says it's, it's actually who we welcome, not who we invite, that says a lot about who we are and what we believe. It's who we welcome. We, we are all about inviting the neighborhood, but it's actually who we welcome <laughs> and say, hey, we actually want you here. We want you in our church. We want you at our dinner because we believe that somehow when we're together, we represent the heart of Christ. And by the way, um, that word stranger, we often think of like welcoming strangers, phyloxenia. We often think of people from another world than ours. Um, somebody who speaks another language, I already said this, but different customs, different socioeconomic class, all that stuff. The idea here that's really important for us to begin with, I, I read this in a, a book by Henry Nowen a while back, and I was talking to one of our youth leaders this morning about it. Henry Nowen says that strangerly love can only exist on a number of levels between many different types of relationships when we're able to be good hosts with the strangers in our midst. When we're able to be good hosts with the strangers in our midst, then we'll understand how to extend hospitality to the broadest possible horizons. And then Nowen talks about the kinds of relationships that are strange to us. For example, the relationship between parent and children. 
it's very estranged many times. I've got a middle school daughter, and she's about as different from me as I can imagine in my world. <laughs> Some of you understand. And put this in terms of welcoming somebody in, uh, inviting them to the table of God's grace, uh, befriending them. This, my daughter is a great, great opportunity for that. Uh, neighbors are a good opportunity for that. Other Christians, like this is where now and really blew my doors off, but like there's a deep need for us within our own community right here, this room, to cultivate an understanding of God's heart for hospitality. When you look around this room, when I look around this room, there are a number of people, I don't know if you know this, that come and go on Sundays and nobody talks to them. Right here. Uh, nobody knows their story. They're experiencing isolation, loneliness, fear, uh, feel very alone because they're very different. And what now I'm saying is start here. Just because somebody's a Christian doesn't mean they're experiencing God's grace. Those two aren't necessarily the same. And we have an opportunity within these walls to, ex to express hospitality to each other, begin there, and then work out how that looks in every other possible relationship with refugees, with homeless, with people of like, different race and ethnicity. And so in that way, every one of us, you don't have to be going to this Good Neighbor Team thing this afternoon, though I'd love it if you did. Every one of us have an opportunity nearly every day to love strangers into belief, to welcome people into our lives. It could be the homeless person wandering along Lake City Way. It could be the neighbor who you've known for decades, <laughs> and yet you've never invited into your own home. It could be the agnostic, antagonistic coworker. It could be the person sitting right here next to you. And God's just saying, be so bold as to introduce yourself to that person sitting next to you. Be so bold as to invite the neighbor over. Start there, and then let me show you how amazing grace is. So Jesus is just asking us to ask ourselves, who are the strangers in our lives? Who are the strangers in your life? I mean, within our church, maybe it's in your neighborhood, are there any weary travelers? You just, you see somebody in your life, you go, wow, they look really tired. Um, anyone who seems hungry for relationship, thirsty for a word of grace, lonely, facing discouragement, you have an opportunity through this discipline of hospitality to say God's grace is real. God's grace is more than enough. God's grace is here for you. Uh, he's asking us to ask ourselves those questions and then welcome people in. So are you available? That's the, the last requirement. Let me go quickly through this whole last thing because we're, we're at time. But the result of hospitality, Jesus gives it to us in verse 24 of, the, of this whole story. He says, none of those who are invited will taste my banquet. But everyone, the presumption is who came to the banquet is going to taste my banquet. And we think, this is just about the food. But the pronouns switched, if you read the whole story, from third person, he was telling a parable, to first person. And if you read in the Greek, you see this. So what that means is Jesus is now talking. He switched from telling a story to talking about his own banquet. He's saying, none of those who are invited will taste my banquet. It's no longer a story, guys. My banquet is what this is all about. It's not some fictional story. So what's the point? What's Jesus' banquet? I guess the question we need to always be asking when we come to this discipline of hospitality and when we come to sitting with people at table. And the banquet of Jesus is really all over the Bible, but I'll give you one example in Isaiah 25 where God says that there's this picture of this mountain with people from every nation, every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered. 
And here's the vision. A banquet of aged wine, best meats, finest wines. Okay? But on the mountain, in this banquet, here's what's going to happen. Jesus, who's the Lord of the banquet, is going to swallow up death. (laughs) He's going to wipe away tears. He's going to remove disgrace from people. He's going to banish shame. That's what he's doing at the banquet. It's not just about fine meat and wines, eating at the finest restaurants. It's about (laughs) defeating death and removing shame from your lives and removing grief from our lives as well. And so Jesus is saying in this, this last bit here, of all the things I could tell you in this whole story, of the many, 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 many things, the primary thing, the thing I've come to do is to bring joy into your life, to bring to swallow death, to remove disgrace, to remove shame. Which throughout the symbol of uh, the story of God is always Jesus' point when he sits down with people. He's never just about eating and drinking, though he is about that. He's throwing down the gauntlet. He's saying, I'm the Lord of the feast. I'm the Lord of joy. I'm, the, I'm not just some guest here. I'm just some rabbi in the ancient Near East. I desire that everyone tastes my banquet, which is the defeat of death, triumph over shame, victory over fear. So the point of it all, the point of our gathering, let's just say this Thursday, the point of gathering with family, the few, if I can look into the future of Thanksgiving this year for us, what Jesus would want is a sense of the greatest emotional, physical, spiritual well-being, but also grace that he could ever, you could ever imagine. His desire for us is that we would taste and see his goodness, that he's alive, which always happens when we come together in that sense, in these communal gatherings over great food, and we, we relax into what God's doing. And we say, hey, well, God, what are you doing in this place? What kind of people would we be if we saw that vision for our gatherings when we're together with friends around a table? Not that you have to kind of pray <laughs> and kind of, you know, talk about Jesus in those gatherings, but just open your eyes to what God, the power of God, how God's bringing people together, uh, healing people's lives, whether it's Thanksgiving, dinner out tonight with a few neighbors, coffee next week. What kind of people would we be if we realized the end point of history is actually that that story in Isaiah 25, this incredible party. So the Lord of the banquet is with us, friends. He's with us this morning. He's with us this coming week. And we're invited just to join him. Join him Thursday. Join him Friday. Give him space for his grace, time for his grace and his healing to accomplish what he intends to accomplish. Um, so let me actually pray us out. I'll invite Andrew, Adam, and David back up. And I want to pray over... I've never done this, but just pray over what we're going to do in the coming few days. <laughs> You're going to be, got, many of you, with either Friendsgiving, uh, with people because you don't have family nearby, or in my case, you're going to gather with family that, yeah, don't really want to be with them right now. Things are not easy. And so, and I'm not talking about my wife and my kids, but the extended version of that family. And you know my story, but, and that's, a, that's the story for many of you. And you, you want something to happen in those gatherings. Uh, ultimately, you want reconciliation in the relationships. And you want to be able to just laugh. And you want to be able to just have, you know, a good time. So I just want to pray into those for you, for us, that this vision of God's rest- restoration could be on us as we go out into those gatherings, okay? Let's take a moment to pray.